This is Guns and Butter. And it was very hard for me, having even having gone through the administrative betrayal of the EPA and the government denying us that, to realize that that they had deliberately allowed this to happen. See, that, as far as I knew, that that they deliberately let this happen. Um, it wasn't until much later I knew so much more about not only did they deliberately, they actually were involved with it. What I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt by the ending of May 2002 was that they had deliberately looked the other way. And that, for me, before Ground Zero had closed, was like going to the bottom of the pit again. It's like a 9-11 all over again. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Indira Singh. Indira Singh has been working on Wall Street since 1975. On 9-11, she was working as a senior consultant for J.P. Morgan Chase. She was tasked with developing a next-generation operational risk blueprint, which would proactively identify exposures, including money laundering, rogue trading, and illicit financing patterns. It was in this capacity nine months later that she sought to subcontract with software engineer P-Tech to design a next-generation risk blueprint for J.P. Morgan Chase. Indira Singh is a private pilot and a climber. Prior to 9-11, she volunteered as a civilian emergency medical technician until she was injured at Ground Zero. Indira Singh, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. Indira, where were you on September 11th, 2001? You were living in New York City, weren't you? Yes, I was living and working in lower Manhattan, a couple hundred yards away from the World Trade Center. My apartment was southwest of the site, and um, I worked on Wall Street for J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, where were you on that very morning of September 11th? Were you at home? Were you at work? That morning, I was I was at home. I was late. I was supposed to have attended a risk conference that was being held on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center at the North Tower. And um, for some reason, I woke up late and uh, didn't make it there. So when the first plane hit, I was actually on my way out in, in a business suit. And um, I turned back, changed into my EMT clothes. I was a civilian emergency medical technician in New York State. And the second plane hit, and I basically went down to the site from that point on. So your offices, were your offices actually in the World Trade Center? No, they weren't. They were on Wall Street itself. And um, there were offices that I consulted in all around the World Trade Center, but... um, the only reason I would have been there that morning was this risk technology se- seminar. Risk Waters had a – basically, they invited people from all over the world, all over the country. And there were um, close to 100 delegates already assembled when the first plane hit. No one made it off the 106th floor. And that was a meeting that you were scheduled to be in and you were simply late. I was late, yeah. Indira, what's an emergency medical technician, and how did you become an EMT? 
Well, I was pre-med for many, many years and before I went into technology. But I traveled. I was basically a mountain climber. I traveled to Asia many times. And um, when you indulge in these activities, um, pretty risky activities in remote areas, someone ought to know how to, for instance, uh, set a broken leg or take care of medical emergencies. That part of the world is itself beset with terrorist attacks. I frequently saw the results of violence or just, you know, serious accidents, buses running, falling over into a ravine. So about four or five years prior to 9-11, I decided to get licensed so I would know what to do in case of an emergency. And in New York uh, City, because it's so dense with hospitals, um, there are not many volunteer ambulance corps, but I did belong to one in um, Brooklyn. I rode a bus and ambulance um, pretty much every Friday um, night whenever I could. So I was licensed. And so the rules are that in a multi-casualty incident, especially the one the size of the World Trade Center attack, um, it's all hands on deck. So you were in a business suit on the street, actually, then when the first plane hit the first tower? Yes, yes. And I went back. Uh, actually, I was on my way out of my building, technically. And I um, I went back and uh, changed into my EMT clothes, and I remember that being very much in slow motion and trying to assemble my my jump kit. Um, I went, I left. I went back again for for burn sheets because we knew, you know, it was an airplane incident. A lot of little things like that are the things I remember that I did at the time. What was it like, if I may ask you, out on the street when the plane hit the towers? It was panic. It was absolute chaos. People were running. No one knew what had happened because there were a lot of people who wanted to get close to see it. When it really, the panic happened when the first tower came down. When the second plane hit and the first tower came down, there was it was utter panic. I was located south of the towers, and there is no egress there because there are only the bridges, the Brooklyn Bridge, Manhattan Bridge, so you're basically trapped. Most people south of the towers felt trapped. Most people tried to run towards the water and then north, which is the, was the only way you could get out, but it was um, absolute panic. I was advising people that I saw what to do, mostly my neighbors and, and friends. Um, and I remember that after the first tower collapsed, I was telling them to dress for winter. And I don't know why the words nuclear winter kept going through my head because you couldn't see anything because you're so close to the ground. You know, people are small and the dust cloud was so dense, you couldn't see in front of you. In fact, I remember calling someone in, in California because most of my friends on the East Coast, the lines were down or busy. So I kept calling further and further west until I got someone awake in California, which is six o'clock, you know. And I asked them to turn on the TV and see what was going on because we couldn't see anything. It was just so black. Um, that was actually the very next thing I was going to ask you was about the dust clouds because I've seen pictures of the streets of New York City. Actually, I, I have met a woman who's an artist who was there at the time. Her apartment windows were blown out, mm -hmm. and she took pictures on the street of the devastation after the plane hit, but then more pictures after the towers came down. And you could tell the difference in the time frames because after the towers came down, 
there was this incredible dust over everything. That's right. You could get lost. You couldn't see in front of you. In fact, I got lost just going around the corners. Um, the dust clung to all the buildings and wiped out any writing, any the shapes became very surreal. You didn't know where you were, and that was also part of the shock, that everything that was recognizable became this gray, dark blob. And I got lost many times just going a couple hundred yards. Was there also debris in this dust cloud? It wasn't just mm -hmm. fine powder, was it? No, there was everything in it. In fact, we asked the EPA later what was in it, and they said there was everything in it, including human remains. Um, there was, uh, I remember, um, suitcases, glass. There was a lot of glass, so much glass. Uh, you remember, the towers are extremely high, and with the fires and the and the winds up there, um, anything that was blown out was caught in a in a in an updraft and and carried. There were whole windows that were carried all the way down Broadway and made it into the East River. If you can imagine, that's thousands of yards away. People were just staring up, looking, wondering when and where it would come down. It was being carried like a piece of paper, and there were suitcases f from. People, we don't know. We're just assuming that they were in the planes. But it was so random what got thrown out and kicked out as well as, um, you know, right around the buildings themselves. There were clearly evidence of uh, uh, the usual debris, human and other remains um, of, a, of an airplane crash, a very serious airplane crash. So that's not, a, a you know, in question. I know a lot of people think that. I've heard everything, including that holograms flew into the World Trade Center. Well, you know, I wonder who's paying them to put that out. But uh, one of the things that I couldn't do, even though I'm an avid amateur photographer, is I couldn't take a single photograph because what kept going through my mind is that this was a crime scene. And here were people's, the remains of people's loved ones on the street. Even if it was just a body part, it was somebody's loved one. And I know it was a crime scene, but uh, I know it was also a world event, but it just seemed horrific to me to even just photograph it. It, it was, in, in my opinion, the way I reacted to it, I couldn't take any photographs. But I, I understand that how necessary it was to have documented every shred of it, given what's happening now. How long then did you work as an emergency medical technician, and exactly what is it that you were doing? Well, there was so much chaos, Bonnie. There was, when, when I got there, we were setting up triage sites close, very close to the area. The triage site that I was setting up was behind, well, to the east of Building 7, where Building 7 came down. And um, what we were expecting as an EMT, you're trained for live survivors, and there were people uh, on the pile digging and looking for survivors. And what would happen is they would bring someone out to the nearest triage center. We would stabilize them, put them in an ambulance, and send them further Uptown, so we were setting up triage as close to the pile as possible. You know, as on it in in many cases. So what we were doing was setting up um, different kinds of stations: IV stations, cardiac stations, just wound stations, burn stations. Just trying to have an organized uh, space. What happened 
with that particular triage site is that pretty soon afternoon um, and after midday on 9-11, we had to evacuate that because they told us Building 7 was coming down. If you had been there, not being able to see very much, just flames everywhere and dark smoke, it is entirely possible. I, I do believe that they brought the Lynx oven down because I heard that they were going to bring it down because it was unstable because of the collateral damage. That I don't know. I can't attest to the, to the um, validity of that. All I can attest to is that by noon or 1 o'clock, they told us we had to move from that triage site up to Pace University, a little further away, because the Lynx oven was going to come down or being brought down. Did they actually use the word brought down, and who was it that was telling you this? The fire department, the fire department, and um, they did use the word, we're going to have to bring it, we're going to have to bring it down. And for us there, um, observing the nature of the devastation, it was, it made total sense to us that this was indeed a, a possibility. Given the subsequent controversy over it, I, I don't know. You know, I'm not an engineer. I don't know. All I know is, you know, that was my experience. We backed off a little bit to Pace University. There was another panic around 4 o'clock because they were bringing the building down. And people seemed to know this ahead of time. So people were panicking again and, and running. I went back to One Liberty, which was further south of where I was before, and there were triage sites set up in there. Um, we were treating basically people who were on the pile digging for survivors, if there were any, and it was basically chaos. Um, I asked who was in charge, for instance, because I'm supposed to check in with whoever's in charge, and no, no one seemed to know. It, it was complete and utter chaos there. If there was someone in charge, the normal response units around... For a multi-casualty incident, they didn't know. One of the big problems is that so many people in the fire department and the police department at a high level had been already killed that there was complete and utter shock and disbelief, and uh, they were still trying to sort out the details. I know you certainly weren't concentrating on this, but did you happen to notice any fires in World Trade Center 7? Yes, I think I think there was. I couldn't get close enough because of the smoke. I couldn't really tell where the fires were coming from. I didn't have a bird's eye view. I was down on the ground and there was all this rubble and devastation around me. If someone told me there was a fire in Building 7, I would have likely believed it simply because there were fires everywhere. There were fires because there was so much paper and litter on the streets for hundreds of yards around, there were fires everywhere. It was confetti, uh, sort of like a ticker tape parade. And if someone set fire on the street to a ticker tape parade, it would all burn in a line. So there were just flames everywhere. What an experience. Are you still emotionally affected by this? I would imagine so. Yeah. For those of us who responded, you're never prepared for anything like this, the shock of in a lot of ways, 9-11 was my, World Trade Center was my backyard. And to those of us who live, we put it in the shadow of the twins. All I can, you know, basically say, this may sound silly, but I refer to the book Divided We Stand, which was a book about the building of the World Trade Center towers. And the people who lived and worked there experienced these two controversial towers buildings completely differently than the rest of the world. You know, most people think that you'd go to the top and get vertigo looking down. The, for those of us who knew, the best vertigo to be had was 
to be right at the bottom, hold on to one of the corners and look all the way up. You pretty much couldn't stand. So there were mysterious international structures that were the center and the heart of our Western civilization, basically. I thought that it was pretty remarkable that they were situated in in lower Manhattan. The south end of Manhattan Island was considered sacred ground by Native Americans. And a lot of people thought that one of the reasons Wall Street was so successful is because it was built on such sacred ground. So because we... I lived there. It was my choice to live there and work there and build my career there. And um, it hit me. It was my backyard and my community, my neighbors, my friends, my colleagues. This was personal to us in a way that it wouldn't have been if you were just, for instance, commuting into work. We were very connected to that very special area of lower Manhattan, Now, did you work as an emergency medical technician for more than one day? How long did this go on for you? Well, I worked pretty much nonstop at the One Liberty Triage Center. It went on until Saturday or Sunday until basically I was so sick that I was experiencing cardiac symptoms and um, a friend came to get me and take me out of there. I was pretty stubborn. I wouldn't go to a hospital, but none of us really wanted to be another victim So I was there until the Sunday, I believe. And I just wanted to clarify now, wasn't it a Tuesday that this happened? Yes, yes. So, um, And I was there fairly nonstop. I don't think I slept for more than an hour or two hours for the first three days. And I was at the One Liberty triage site. I was there all of that night, the night of 9-11, 9-12. That was a most remarkable night because... We had nothing. We had no food. We had no coffee. I I just didn't understand how no one could know how bad it was there because um, we literally squeezed 30 cups of coffee out of one sorry bag of grounds. And um, if you know anything about um, One Liberty, that building that Merrill Lynch, I think Merrill Lynch had been, uh, had offices in there, but there was Brooks Brothers, a very famous business clothing store for men and women, and there were coats, cashmere coats, and we had no blankets. So I went upstairs to get the coats so that the firefighters would have something to keep them warm. And I remember the guards thinking they couldn't do it, so I gave them my credit card for hundreds of thousands of dollars of cashmere coats, which were, you know, fairly contaminated anyway. But I remember the shift in reality, having breaking all the rules, you know. We had no food. The firefighters broke in for food just to get goat cheese and chicken sandwiches. (laughs) And, you know, it was simultaneously a morgue, a place for firefighters to rest, triage station, and, you know, place to lay out sandwiches all there in the lobby. It was fairly incomprehensible. Outside, you couldn't see there was this mountain of burning debris, people with tears and horrified looks on their faces just basically arguing. There were fierce and um, very heated arguments about the best way to go about removing the debris to reach the survivors that we knew were still alive underneath. And we knew people were still alive until at least, as far as I know, until Thursday, Thursday afternoon, if not Friday. So then you were on the scene working 
as an EMT until the following Saturday or Sunday. Right. So yeah. maybe five, six days. Yes, yes. And then what? Your health was being affected. Um, yeah, I couldn't breathe. I was experiencing cardiac s- symptoms. I'd already treated some people. There was a 29-year-old firefighter who, had a, who went into cardiac arrest on Wednesday. So there were people who were, I mean, people, rescue workers really were injuring themselves. There was glass Eye injuries were the most common because of the smoke and the debris and um, the flames and the sparks from the metal cutting, the torches. It wasn't uncommon to pull glass out of somebody's eyes and them to go right back, you know, burning right through rubber boots. Uh, Just you knew that you had maybe three days to get somebody out of there if that. So you were willing to go to the edge in terms of your own safety. All the rules were broken at that point because... So are you saying that in addition to the professionals and the EMTs like yourself, were then they're just New York citizens in there po- digging mm. through this rubble? Well, in at least one case I know, um, there was a, a young man who had broken his knee, which I had splinted, I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday, not sure, but he was looking for his brother. And I remember that because he didn't want to be moved from the site, and I think he knew um, that if he was moved from the site, he would never come back and he would never see his brother again. So I know they were letting him stay just to, so that he could just stay there for a while until we evacuated him. But if you weren't there the first day, you pretty much weren't getting in by the second or the third day. And because, believe it or not, there were people looting the bodies, we didn't want a lot of people, a lot of chaos. There was enough chaos anyway because most of the fire department, police department, the response units had no idea who their new bosses were because their old bosses had had perished. I'm speaking with 9-11 whistleblower, risk technology architect, and Ground Zero emergency medical technician, Indira Singh. Today's show, Ground Zero 9-11, Blueprint for Terror, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So in terms of, yes, when I... There's there's so many levels to, you know, my 9-11 experience just from being there because after five or six days, since I'm trained for live survivors and it was clear that I did not want to become, you know, it doesn't help anybody if I become a victim myself. So, and there were going to be no more live survivors. I basically returned home to see what was left of my community. That's when the reality of what 9-11, how 9-11 was going to be spun to the rest of the nation, we hit that head on because I don't know who could possibly expect a contaminated toxic site burning. The fires burned for three months. The big fire went out on December 18th, but the fires burned into January. And they were burning, I remember calling it a concentration campfire because there were they were still cooking the remains of people. It was literally that. The stench was was unbelievable. And that was my backyard. And, um, you know, the EPA refused to declare the site unsafe, the air quality unsafe, even though they had spent enormous amounts of money protecting their own building in lower Manhattan. Basically, my neighbors came to me Um, Actually, I should back up because one of the first things that we did do is my local firehouse had lost 14 men, engine 4, ladder 15. So 
One of the things that I did since I had organized the neighborhood with other people before is I wanted to do a benefit because firefighters' wives who were in desperate straits, I know that there was a lot of money that people all over the world sent in. The money was pouring in, but it really, even at that time, wasn't getting to the right people. So I held a benefit for our local ladder company. And more than to raise money, it was just to let them know that we appreciated who they were, what they were, and that our neighborhood was was there and behind them who we were. And in order for us to get through this emotionally and physically, we needed to do it together. It was a way to go around to all the neighbors' houses, knock on doors, find out who was in really serious psychological or physical trouble and who wasn't because no one else was doing it for us. We basically had to do it. A lot of people did flee with their children never to come back. So we went around from door to door looking at the elderly, people who didn't have the funds to move on, and encouraged them to come to the benefit and just to get out to meet your neighbors and see how you're doing. A lot of people could not because they were still burying their dead, and a lot of people did come, and they thought it was a wonderful thing. But immediately after that, the neighborhood, we began to schedule meetings because we liked it and needed it to be with each other. We scheduled meetings, and um, I set up neighborhood post-traumatic stress counseling with Safe Horizons. These groups were beginning to form and began to hold meetings group counseling sessions. And at those group counseling sessions, what everyone wanted to talk about was how physically sick we were and how the emergency room and doctors did not know what to do for us. They had no idea what to do for us. We were exhibiting symptoms that, physical symptoms that they weren't prepared, didn't know what it was. I was just going to ask you, what time frame is this now? Where are we <clears throat> since September 11th? Right. I held the benefit October 29th, 2001. The first neighborhood meeting was early in November. And we had, at that point, connected with um, a similar thing that was going on on the other side of Broadway. In Battery Park City, they were organizing there because they were experiencing exactly the same things we were. So we were beginning to coordinate Lower Manhattan. We were beginning to organize and coordinate. We wanted, for instance, one person per building that would speak on behalf of all the tenants, come to meetings, and try to get the politicians to do something with this EPA that had the nerve to look at a toxic waste dump burning out of control for three months and say there was absolutely nothing wrong with the air. And I believe even Christy Todd Whitman, she had has reversed her opinion, but there were very bitter, heated uh, meetings at the Senate hearings that um, our local politicians held uh, during that time. This is November 2001. Basically, everyone had been breathing that smoke for about six to eight weeks, and it, it was it was beginning to show up. I can't believe that the government and the city, New York State, they weren't doing anything for people? No, they were not. They weren't. I mean, I mean, the local politicians were Jerry Nadler and Sheldon Silver, um, the state and local Democratic leaders who also lived down there were livid. And um, I gave testimony at those hearings. We were angry because we were still in shock from 9-11 and could not believe that this administrative betrayal would... Um, be so obvious. And um, of course, on the news, the whole focus was the Afghanistan war and where is Osama bin Laden and the anthrax attacks. 
most of the news of Lower Manhattan was blacked out. For instance, there were, at least that I know of, 11 anthrax um, scares, 11 times that buildings were evacuated for anthrax scares that caused huge commotions and running, panicked runnings in the street that reminded everyone of 9-11. That was never reported. Are you talking about New York City or Washington, D.C.? New York City. New York City. Lower Manhattan specifically. No, I never heard about that. No. no. And um, so much went on that went unreported. See, it was considered unpatriotic to dwell on how bad things were down there. I, I don't know any other way to put it except... There's one morning a father brought his seven-year-old son near the barges where they were taking away all the debris, the smoldering debris. They would truck the smoldering debris through our streets at night and offload them onto barges on the East River or wherever. They were still smoldering. Remember one father brought his seven-year-old kid there to look at it, to see what the terrorists had done. And we tried to tell him that this is toxic stuff and his child was too young to be smelling and breathing this. And he seemed to think it was his patriotic duty to bring his child to to smell this or inhale this toxic stuff. And we realized that the world had gone crazy. But, yeah, they were spraying for cholera um, all the way down to Water Street in October and November. None of that went reported. At one point, I noticed that you testified as to your physical symptoms and how this had affected your health. What did happen to you just on a physical level? It's an interesting question because I was in excellent physical condition for my age and gender, and I was training for an 8,000-meter mountain climb. So aerobically, I knew I could be up at 1920,000 20,000 feet with no oxygen, pretty much uh, doing a fair amount of aerobic activity. What happened to me is that I was – what happened to all of us, basically, and it doesn't sound very nice, but this is what happened. Uh, we had sores. Some firefighters I know still have these horrific sores all over their body. Our hair fell out. Eye infections, uh, shortness of breath, adult-onset asthma, chronic coughs, tiredness, extreme fatigue, cardiac symptoms, heart palpitations where you never had any before, irritability, uh, a lot of symptoms that were consistent with neurotoxic poisoning. Those were just the physical symptoms. And in some cases, people reported that their hair fell out and even their dental work fell out. And to me, they were consistent with signs of radiation poisoning. But however, the toxic cocktail that had been burning there, I think a California group went in and analyzed and pretty much came out with the determination that there were about 900 contaminants, 200 different kinds of dioxins. We have the particulate matter, the asbestos, the concrete. They had said that particles were ground so fine, they were the, they were the smallest particles ever produced in history. And they blew past all our barriers and lodged right in our, our lungs. And most of us who were exposed to that are suffering from something called reactive airway disease syndrome, which is something that the coal miners get. Um, but what it means is that from that point on, you cannot be around anything. It pretty much uh, triggers an asthma attack. Stomach problems. What is interesting is that we were 
Any time we, we were ill or not feeling right, the September 11th help services in the Red Cross would try to get us into counseling. And to me, at the end of all of this, it, it seemed that we experienced the same thing that the Gulf War or other civilians who were exposed to local Superfund site disasters, we're all told it was in our head. That's exactly what went on down at 9-11. The World Trade Center is just another massive Superfund site. And um, we're told it was in our head. So if you weren't feeling well, if you were feeling irritable, if you, you had the feeling that it was just you. It wasn't until I went to a, a detox program and we got together with everyone else and compared symptoms that we realized that this was an epidemic. So traditional medicine, and I guess you mentioned before, the doctors didn't know how to treat this. No, they didn't. And even the firefighters told us to go for, they said the Chinese medicine worked, alternative. Never so fast in the history, <laughs> I think, of the world had so many people who swore that all this alternative stuff was junk. Never so fast did they just turn around to acupuncture and this therapy and that therapy because we were all in trouble. So... Some people took a mixture of the traditional medicine and alternative medicine. And one of the things that I had insisted on in November was that the hospitals start recognizing and opening programs for the residents. And I found out that Mount Sinai had just got funding for a World Trade Center program, but it was only for rescue workers. And Dr. Levin, who headed that program, because I was at one of the meetings advocating for the neighborhood, said, you're sick, you can come down here. We only have room for 200 people, but I'll make sure you get in. The earliest appointment was December 7th, 2001. And I said, well, that's fine. What do I go back and tell my neighbors that because I was a rescue worker, I'm eligible for your stuff? and for your program, and they're not. So when the first programs began to be configured, it was only to monitor what our symptoms were and to track us over time. There were very little intervention programs available to us at the beginning. And in many cases, the baseline tests were all lost. The baseline test, what do you mean by that? Well, what happens is when you go to the World Trade Center program, you are evaluated, your pulmonary capacity, your cardiac, your blood. They tested for mercury and um, heavy metals, or a lot of heavy metal poisoning, lead, and you, you know what's in computers and, and in, in modern buildings, pretty much everything. And so... A lot of those tests that I heard from other people sitting in the waiting room that I followed up with later, they couldn't find them. They were lost. There were trucks somewhere. What happened is the programs were funded for maybe six months, and then some other group would come in and fund it, so they would start over again. So I just, we were very jaded, wondered whether that was deliberate or just normal administrative incompetence. And what about your apartment? I assume you were living in an apartment in yes. Manhattan. Yeah, my apartment was basically when I came back. Remember, I'm walking on the streets and it's completely contaminated. I walked into my apartment and dust was everywhere on everything. The dust fell for years. The particles were so small, they just kept falling for years. Our dust patterns were such that if you dusted in the morning, two hours later, you had to dust again. Um, and every time we cleaned, we would get sick. And that's why we called the EPA to find out what was in it. And we would get really sick to the point where we couldn't move. We felt paralyzed almost. Because the EPA 
decided that nothing was wrong with the air, they wouldn't provide cleaning. So we had to either do it ourselves. I know a lot of the um, corporations hired cleaners, undocumented workers, many of whom got horrifically sick and died. I went actually went to the CDC and um, asked them, insisted in December, and I was pretty out of control at that time. I insisted they start a secondary body count because my neighbors had already started dying. Basically, if you were elderly or had some kind of illness and 9-11 hit and you were living there, you probably didn't make it. Wow. Did they ever come up with the causes of the deaths? No, they wouldn't. A lot of people left, knew that the area was making them sick, so they scattered. And as a result, we have lost the ability to track people. A lot of people who came to help us, I am sure, came back home. Firefighters from even California went back home with symptoms. And the reason I know this is I talked to rescue workers who came from New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and um, I spoke to them as recently as six months ago. These are real macho types, and they don't want to admit to things. And they would say, well, does this happen to you too? I go, yes, it does. It's happened to all of us. And if you know other people who are down there, please, there is a way to fix it. But full body steroids is not the way. (laughs) Indira, you mentioned a little bit earlier these very, very fine particulate dust. And you mentioned a report that talked about this particulate matter. What is that report? Does it have a name? There were several reports because of the investigations that I ended up doing later, I put all a lot of the environmental stuff away. I'm sure that if somebody Googled it, they could probably come up with it. It's something that I'd have to go through my files and, and look for. A UPI reporter by the name of Alex Kukan, who actually covered Love Canal, she was amazing. She was amazing. She helped us through it. And she got the key stories out in December, in April, and in May when the EPA suddenly agreed to clean based on political and community pressure. But that was nine months later. Alex Kukan, she talked to us and told us what to expect and set our expectations about what the government and the administration would and would not do for us. And boy, was she ever right. We owe her a huge debt for just helping us get through that time. Some of the things that she told us, she said after an incident like this, you know, the one-month anniversary, the three-month and the six-month anniversary are going to be really hard. The nine, not so hard. The one year is going to be horrific. So I can't thank her enough. Now, your health has improved greatly since you went through detox, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It has, but because my... What happened is when the towers fell, I know it registered on the Richter scale. And for instance, the Federal Reserve Building, their walls cracked. And um, there are actually signs, you know, if you go on a tour through there where you can see evidence of it. Well, the building I lived in was a landmark building, very old, Revolutionary War era, and um, it cracked as well. So we had what the maintenance people called the 9-11 blob moving through the walls and recontaminating us. But something very odd happened. We ended up getting the same kind of mold and fungus that was in the Deutsche Bank building, which was right opposite the World Trade Center. And we don't know why, but it was also in my building, in my apartment. So in addition to all the dust, we were exposed to this (laughs) 9-11 fungus or mold or or whatever that, that came through. So after I went through detox, a detoxification program, I 
was still living in the apartment, and I was coming back down with symptoms. And that's when they advised me to leave and go to California. The doctors there did, and said I needed to get out of the apartment as it was recontaminating me. Did I hear you correctly when you said that your apartment went back to the revolutionary? Era? Yes. So. Basically, a George Washington slept here <laughs> block, but the building had been built and rebuilt and rebuilt several times. So when I I left in 2004 last year and I came out to California and uh, began to pay attention to the other injuries I had sustained down there, for the longest time it was all about my lungs and the organs that were being affected. I didn't get around to the orthopedic injuries until, you know, last year. Orthopedic injuries with regard to what? Stumbling around? That uh, type of thing? Yeah, I was. Uh, there was a rescue worker stampede off the pile because buildings, collateral buildings, were so unstable that it was hard to see if something would fall and collapse. And so, you know, there would be a signal, three bells and a whistle, and people would rush off the pile. They were working in teams, 19 teams, 20 exits. And and um, I just got caught up in one of those and I got basically trampled. And But you're in another world when you were down there. You, you weren't feeling pain at all. You know, people could work with broken fingers and just the adrenaline levels were just so high you didn't even notice anything. And it's kind of interesting because for those of us who sought compensation for some of our injuries, especially if we didn't have health insurance because everyone lost their jobs because of what happened there, it's something that is recognized that rescue workers will not even notice they're injured for at least two or three months before they calm down and start paying attention to themselves. So you worked as an EMT then for five or six days. Right. You continued to live in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. in that apartment for what, an additional three, three and a half years? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Wow. I I have been diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress, but I try not to. What happened is that in order for me to be taken seriously by um, CBS, by any investigator, I had to put all of that away because um, they said, you know, she's just some stressed out, yeah, I had to bury it. And it was very hard for me, having even having gone through the administrative betrayal of the EPA and the government denying us that, to realize that that they had deliberately allowed this to happen. See, that's as far as I knew, that, that they deliberately let this happen. Um, it wasn't until much later I knew so much more about not only did they deliberately, they actually were involved with it. What I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt by the ending of May 2002 was that they had deliberately looked the other way. And that for me, before Ground Zero had closed, was like going to the bottom of the pit again. It was like a 9-11 all over again. I'm speaking with 9-11 whistleblower, risk technology architect, and Ground Zero emergency medical technician, Indira Singh. Today's show, Ground Zero 9-11, Blueprint for Terror, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Indira, now, all of this time before September 11, 2001, and subsequently, 
you were working. Where were you working? Mm-hmm. Um, September 11th, I was consulting. I was a senior consultant for J.P. Morgan Chase and Risk. I had worked. I had cycled through several of their risk areas as um, an enterprise architect, or uh, information architect, a technology architect, and an enterprise architect, which basically means that you take a look at the entire enterprise and come up with a blueprint to make sure that all the systems, not just one system, but all the systems, the blueprints for all the systems that are developed to support the business are in line, in tune with the business goals and the business architecture and business processes and where the business is going. So it's pretty uh, high level and work at the, we call the CXO levels, the chief information officer, chief technology officer levels. And um, there are disciplines and methodologies and very esoteric software that's used to uh, manage this. And I did that at J.P. Morgan Chase, and I also worked for a small company in Washington, D.C. that was doing some very innovative work regarding um, technology interoperability. They were developing some inference engines to think about how to put architectures together technology architectures together, and I wanted to use that for my risk work, basically. It was interesting that we were seeking funding from Incutel, which was the CIA's IT-seeking, information technology-seeking arm. I had been spending pretty much every Friday, Thursday, Friday, down in D.C. trying to get that project off the ground and um, trying to get it funded. So at this time, you were working for two different companies? That's correct, yeah. Right. Could you explain a little bit about what enterprise architecture is and some of the other terms you've used? You're talking about information technology and data, right? That's correct. Computer-type work. Right. It, it is. But at some point, the systems and the computers that are used in a business are used to support the functions and processes of that business. And... Um, at the highest level, for instance, in a in a bank, they have trading floors, they have uh, retail operations, and they need systems that will help execute the business, help conduct the business, and clear, do all the front office, middle office, back office kind of functions, uh, make sure that all the business efforts are consolidated and reported on and comply with the rules internal and external that govern the industry. So it's a a fairly tall order. And at the end of the day, you want your systems that are, for instance, doing trading swaps in Tokyo to be consistent with those systems that are trading something else in New York. And at the end of the day, you want to know what your total business was. And if you want to change your product service offering, that means that your systems have to change in sync with it. And so the best way to execute, to make this happen is to work off blueprints rather than um, have one-off systems. So pretty much everyone has a business blueprint, a technology blueprint, and uh, various other aspects of, of everything that work together. It's pretty much like what you would expect if you were building a building. You couldn't just go in with a load of bricks and put them down. Similarly, you couldn't just go in with a bunch of computers and expect to help run the business. You need some form of blueprint. So enterprise architecture is the discipline, and we use the word architecture, is the blueprinting of the business and the resources and systems that help implement and support it. This sounds like it's highly technical. 
Yes, it is. It's highly technical, but what's interesting about this is it requires you to understand the business inside out. So it's not only the technology that you need to know about, but you also need to know the intricacies of banking. And in banking, it's all about risk. So it's about credit risk. It's about operational risk. It's about market risk and so on. And so which is why I was pioneering the field of risk enterprise architecture or risk architecture and why I called myself a risk architect because my point was that unless you really understood risk management and enterprise architecture and merged the field, you really weren't going to get that synergy between where the business was headed and what you needed to make sure nothing went wrong in the business, which is risk management, and keep that and all those rules and goals and ideas in sync with the systems that are implemented to conduct the business. So you needed a pretty smart piece of software to think about this, to to even blueprint all of this. And once you've blueprinted it, you know, to sort of keep track of what was going on in the organization to make sure that every system was in sync or the results of the business transactions and positions and whatever in the bank were in sync with what should be. So in your position in risk management with J.P. Morgan Chase, were you developing software to do this? Yes, I was developing the methodology, how to think about it. That was part one. Part two was gaining consensus firm-wide that this is the way that we were going to look at, for instance, operational risk management. This is how we were going to do operational risk management at J.P. Morgan Chase. And once everyone had agreed To that, we were going to phase in by developing software that would help implement it. So it was a multi-phased project. Of course, the agreement was done at a very high level. Then once we had gotten the agreement, we would go out and look at vendors that would help us implement our ideas. And so you were developing an architecture then that would take a look at all aspects of the business at J.P. Morgan Chase. Right, in near real time. Because... The thing about risk management, the thing about risk in the financial industry, over the past 10 years, you have these um, huge uh, horror stories, for example, bearings where you had a, a rogue trader that basically exploited holes in the system. And by the time he was caught, it was too late. The bank went down and brought a lot of other businesses and enterprises down. So we wanted to move from a reactive to a proactive way of looking at what was going on. You can't wait till the horse is too far bolted out of the barn. You have to really take a look at what's going on. And because financial crimes can be so complex, money laundering, it's not just looking at one transaction. It's looking at a whole pattern or system over time of transactions to see what someone might or might not be up to. And then, of course, there are the usual normal errors that occur, innocent errors, you know, careless errors, that sort of thing. I remember that case that you mentioned with Bearings. Wasn't that trader in Singapore? Yes, he was. Yes. I remember that. He brought the whole operation down, Nick Leeson, yes, he did. He did. And really, it was because he was allowed to take positions that actually, if someone was paying attention, they would have stopped him before he went too far. And this is the interesting thing, because there is, in banking and financial institutes, a number of, how shall I put it, a number of transactions wherein we are basically forced to look the other way. So it becomes a matter of not knowing, not knowing um, what's what. For instance, in my work in, in credit risk, I could not get compliance in certain offices to comply with the blueprint. 
the informational blueprint, no matter who I went to, there was just never going to be compliance. So I just wrote up what I saw, and I figured as long as I could write and the regulators could read, that was it. I wasn't going to go any further than that. As a senior consultant, I had done my job. I could bang my head against the wall, you know, maybe a little bit more than others. But, you know, I know that there were other analysts, other risk managers who, for instance, with some of the vehicles that were used, were created to support the activities of Enron, they were highly incensed and they left the firm. That's a whole other show. (laughs) Now, Indira, while you were developing the software, you had to go to an outside vendor, right? That's correct. To either develop additional software or help you with what you were doing. Mm And I notice in some of the things you've written, you considered going to Microsoft or IBM or some other uh, tech-type company. So basically, imagine you have a huge blueprint and you decide that for this piece of it, you're going to develop it in-house or for this piece of it, you can get some off-the-shelf software, but for the for the most important pieces of it, you know, you, you might have to go to a specialty house. And at the end of the day, you know, you'd have basically your own... Uh, operational risk management system. Yes, the most important piece that we wanted to have developed was not found in Microsoft or IBM. However, it was found with a small company, and when small companies have boutique software, they usually align themselves with a larger company. And why? Because the software is generally very, if it provides some very high-level functionality, chances are a major corporation would want to use it. And major corporations tend to not want to deal with very small companies for very good reasons. What happens if they're poorly managed and go out of business, then a very critical piece of their software is all of a sudden you know, no longer available for the business. So most of these small companies do align themselves with larger companies. So we would go to an IBM and say, do you have any alliance with a smaller vendor that you think is pretty good in this field or the other field? And of course, we utilize that tactic in fulfilling our software requirements. So who did you end up consulting with or choosing to work on this software with you? I went to the gurus in the industry, including those in D.C. who are in enterprise architecture, which is a pretty select field, a pretty small niche, fairly high-level people. I showed them pretty much my ideas, what I wanted to do, and um, I asked them recommendations. I had come up with a list of two or three, and I'm a very consensus-oriented person, and they actually said PTEC, and I said, I have concerns that it's a small vendor, and they they asked me, well, why not PTEC? They didn't like recommending a vendor because in case something went wrong down the line, but they recommended to this company that was based in Boston, actually a suburb of Boston, Quincy, by the name of PTEC, which stands for Process technology. I didn't know very much about it. I had utilized consultants prior who had used PTEC and were very familiar with it and spoke highly of the capabilities of the software. And so I moved ahead with it, especially when I found out that they had forged an alliance with IBM and IBM was basically their quote-unquote big brother that would um, fund them and shepherd them through, give them marketing opportunities. So because they had signed an agreement with IBM, we were able to bring in the company under IBM security clearances and agreements with non-disclosure agreements that IBM had with J.P. Morgan because a very large company, most large banks have agreements with the major software vendors like IBM or Microsoft. So that's how we were evaluating many software packages, software houses, risk houses, and PTEC was one of um, several that came on board. 
So now you invited them over for a business meeting to see whether or not you wanted to hire them. Right. I had basically been told, why not PTAC, April 28, 2002. So in the following weeks, I had worked out the details with IBM, with our security, with my supervisors, with my boss, with the various other groups that would be interested. For instance, in any large company, you can't make unilateral decisions, especially if you're dealing on an enterprise level. You have to get buy-in with the various boards, technology advisory boards that are internal, and and a lot of people were interested in evaluating PTEC. My project was one of the first out of the door. So we had pretty much a lot of consensus that this was a thing to do to bring them in, and that took a couple of weeks. So it wasn't until the third week of May 2002 that everything was cleared for them to come up. We had prearranged that they would have a one-day a one-day session with us and would provide a presentation to a group of um, high-level people in risk and in other corporate departments that I was responsible for assembling. And one of the important characteristics that we wanted to have it tested was the ability to change things on the fly, the adaptability and agility of the of the software. And in order for us to test that out, we set them a test, basically, that they would arrive at the premises at a particular time, and they would uh, modify their their software to address some of our requirements. And we would then demo this at about one or two in the afternoon and then make a decision whether we would go to the next step and bring them on board for the next level of software development. So we had a number of conversations and how we would set up the presentation prior to this. A lot of emails confirming who would be there, security clearances, their backgrounds, what would happen pretty much on an hour-to-hour basis. I've been speaking with 9-11 whistleblower and risk technology architect Indira Singh. Today's show has been Ground Zero 9-11, Blueprint for Terror, Part 1. Indira Singh is a private pilot and a climber. Prior to 9-11, she volunteered as a civilian emergency medical technician until she was injured at Ground Zero. This interview with Indira Singh was recorded in person in April of 2005 at night in the KPFA studios in Berkeley. At that time, she was conducting an investigation into PTEC. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarl Mako. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org where this and other programs are archived. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what's inside yourself. 
for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?